Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue to reflect into the richness of the book of Revelation. And I do want to wish all of you out there a Merry Christmas. I know it is uh, the day after Christmas, right? But what does that mean? That we are actually in Christmas season, right? Because up to the 25th of December, we are in the season of Advent, but now we are in the Christmas season. So it would be most appropriate to wish one another Merry Christmas and to not take down all of our Christmas decorations, but to really now celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. This is what this season is about. And I must say it is uh, great to be with you during this Christmas season studying the book Revelation, because really, as we will get into it today, this book is very much about uh, things we think about during Christmas. I mean, what do we do during the Christmas season, but we uh, decorate our homes, decorate our trees, we celebrate by dressing those things up that we own, and it is right that we do that, because why? The church herself is bedecked with jewels. The church herself is adorned with the richness of what rightfully belongs to a king. So this is one of the reasons why we celebrate by adorning those things that we own. And we don't do it with this ostentatious spirit, but rather the deeper understanding that it is right that a king um, wears a crown and a king is adorned with, with jewels. And so ornaments and the like, all of it is, is about the celebration of the infant king. This is a season to rejoice. This is a season to celebrate. This is a season to be grateful um, no matter what situation you are in, we have been given the infant King Jesus. We have been given God now as a what? But friend. We can call God friend, even as an infant. And this is worth rejoicing over because now no matter what problem we have or no matter what we are going through, as bad as it might be and as ominous it may appear, God wishes to bring you out of that and into the light of truth, into the light of rejoicing. And as I've said before, and I could never say enough, he can do this because he does understand. He understands. And we can never turn our back on that. Amen to that. Okay, <laughs> with that opening uh, piece, let us jump back into the book of Revelation and do so mindful of some of the things we were talking about because we are in chapter 21. And in chapter 21, well, what do we get? But this <laughs> new Jerusalem, this holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Mm, so rich. Now, before we get into these verses, let us pull back a little bit here and remember what we talked about on at least two other occasions during our study on the book of Revelation. And that is, 
what the word revelation itself means. Remember that in the opening verse of the book Revelation, we get what? But this Greek word apocalypsis, where we get the word revelation. But what does that word actually mean? Well, it literally means unveiling. In John's time, Jews commonly used apocalypsis or apocalypsus to describe part of their week-long wedding festivities. Now, the apocalypsus was the actual lifting of the veil of a virgin bride, which, of course, took place immediately before the marriage was consummated in sexual union. Hence, apocalypsus means unveiling. And so what is John getting at here? Well, so close is the unity of heaven and earth that it is like the fruitful and ecstatic union of a husband and wife who is in love. I know for some of us that might be a provocative image, but that is the reality that John wants us to see. We have talked about this extensively in Theology of the Body. This lies at the heart of our Eucharistic faith. Moreover, St. Paul describes the church as the what? Bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. Those all-important verses that come to us from Ephesians 5, where the church is described as the bride of Christ, and how husband and wife are to imitate the relationship between the church and Christ— this sacrificial, life-giving relationship, mm, rich. And indeed, my friends, the book of Revelation unveils that bride. The climax of the apocalypse, then, is the communion of the church in Christ, what we have rightfully called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And again, this is what lies at the heart of Scott Hahn's work, The Lamb's Supper. So, my friends, very important to always have that in the rearview mirror. What is it that that Greek word, apocalypsis, actually means? Unveiling. And more specifically, as it would have been understood during our Lord's time in Jewish antiquity, essentially the consummation of two, two becoming one on honeymoon night. And you can be rest assured that John the Evangelist knew that. He knew that. And this is why the book of Revelation is caught up with all this liturgical imagery. I mean, again, this verse does not make a whole lot of sense outside of the Eucharist. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Brothers and sisters, when we receive the Eucharist, our Lord is entering into a bridal union with our very souls. That's the kind of relationship that God desires with us. Our longing for God, our pining for God, our desire for God, we can only hope at best, right, matches God's desire for us, that we might actually match God's desire for us. Okay, what more could be said with these verses? I'm turning now to Michael Barber's Coming Soon, where he says here, with the passing away of the old Jerusalem, the entire old economy is replaced. And what does he mean by that? Well, the temple, the Levitical priesthood, etc., etc. And in this sense, a new creation is inaugurated, right, with the vision of the new Jerusalem. And this explains the spiritual significance of Christ fulfilling all things in himself and in his church, huh? Making the earthly Jerusalem obsolete, 
At the same time, we could also say it looks forward to the last day in which the earth itself will pass away and the church will receive her final heavenly glory. Now, much of this imagery is taken from Isaiah's vision of the great restoration, which will, of course, occur under the Messiah. Now, we have already seen how the prophet envisioned the latter-day deliverance of Israel in terms of a marriage back in chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. We could add here, Isaiah described God's salvation in latter days as a what? New creation. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. And what about the sea here? Well, Michael Barber makes the point that, <laughs> that the sea was a symbol for what? Evil. Remember, we talked about this before. It's passing away, describing God's final victory over the adversary, over Satan. The image also recalls new creation terminology. I mean, if you were to go back into the opening verses, what do you find? That the first creation arose out of the waters of chaos. Chaos. It also evokes Noah's covenant with God in which Noah is made to be a new Adam. In this, my friends, the new creation coincides with the subsiding of the waters of the sea. You can begin to see and really appreciate huh, how things like sea, and as we've also explored land and mountains, are symbolic and, and have significance. That is to say, they signify something, and you can gather what that significance is about when you get into the old and get into the new and appreciate the context to which these great authors were writing in. All right, how about verse 3? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. Mm, mm, mm. Let me read that again. <laughs> Listen to this verse again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. And is this not fitting that we are reading this verse during the Christmas season? He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. Brothers and sisters, we just celebrated the incarnation of God. God now is with us, huh? Emmanuel, isn't our Lord so providential? Isn't God so providential that we would be made to reflect upon this verse during this great season of Christmas. All right, so what can we say about this verse? Well, the New Jerusalem, as we have seen, describes both heaven and Christ's bride, the church. The New Jerusalem comes down from heaven to be with the saints on earth. The image here is this. Through the church, the people of God already share in the heavenly realities. And of course, this is especially true in the Eucharistic banquet where our heavenly high priest is present under signs and symbols. His dwelling is with men, as John says. What is that great passage that comes to us from John 1:14? and the flesh dwelt among us? What we celebrate on Christmas Day and this Christmas season, my friends, is that point. The flesh now dwells among us. Remember what he said, I will be with you always. In the spirit, yes. But what did he say in John 6? What did our Lord say in John 6? If you do not eat of the flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. And the, the Eucharistic discourse, the bread of life discourse continues. And in chapter 6, verses 53, 54, 55, 
He begins to change his Greek, and he, he talks about how we, are, how we are called to receive the Eucharist for all eternity, that the Greek he uses actually implies perpetual consumption of him. And for this reason, he will be with us always. I made the point a few weeks ago, <clears throat> a very important point as it relates to this context of perpetual banquet. There are 346,000 priests today. If all of those priests are saying Mass every day, that means that there are four hosts being consecrated every second of every day. Brothers and sisters, that is a perpetual banquet. Huh? That is a perpetual banquet. And what that means is, well, what Jesus says, he means. He will be with us always, and he will do so in the flesh. God is with us, just not on one day, Christmas Day, but every day. 365 days a year, and every second, and every minute of that day. Amen to that. <laughs> so how about some more Old Testament imagery here? Well, the word for the Lord's dwelling is the same word used for the word tabernacle constructed by Moses in the wilderness. If you were to go back into Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 to 12, and Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26 to 28, both anticipate the day when God will place his sanctuary in the midst of his people. In that day, God promises that the righteous shall be his people, as John sees here in this vision. Ezekiel depicted God's meeting with his people in the wilderness in terms of a what but marital embrace. John, therefore, combines the marriage imagery with tent imagery to convey God's intimate union with the church. And of course, this is the Eucharist. And I love what Michael Barber says here. God is just not close to us here on earth. He is actually communing with us here on earth. John also borrows from Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant, my favorite Old Testament prophecy. You've heard me speak to this before. That Old Testament prophecy when Jeremiah says, they shall be his people. You see, my friends, John wants us to see that Jeremiah's words are fulfilled as the Old Covenant has passed away with the establishment of the new city. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. If you have your Bibles out there, listen to these very explosive words when you begin to unpack its meaning. This is Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Mm. How powerful is that? I mean, do you not hear <laughs> verse 3 in that? He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. Could you not see what John is after here, what he is doing? I mean, if you want a reflection before our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, with Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. And there you will see a seamlessness with potency, with power. 
Now, what's interesting here is that the only time Jesus referred to this new covenant was where? But when he instituted the Eucharist, the only time you see the phrase new covenant in the Old Testament is in that passage. And the only time Jesus referred to this new covenant is when he instituted the Eucharist. And as we've explored, the word covenant can also mean testament. So there in Mark chapter 14, verse 24, he is saying this is the blood of the New Testament. This is the gospel, the good news. Write this? No, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. This is why the first disciples and apostles followed his command. They celebrated the Eucharist because it is the Eucharist where God's covenant union with his people is finally consummated. There, the, the heavenly Jerusalem descends into our churches. Is this not rich, my friends? Okay, how about chapter 21, verses 4 to 5? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, the source for much of the language here in verse 4 is Isaiah's vision of the great messianic banquet in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. There we read, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So once again, my friends, a Catholic may read this passage in connection with the Eucharist, Christ's great banquet, through which death is defeated and truly swallowed up. Now verse 5, not surprisingly, continues with a reference uh, to who but Isaiah. If you were to go to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19, Behold, I am making a new thing. Now what's interesting here is in the Greek, the word is present tense and actually may be translated as I am making, not simply I make. This is not therefore simply a vision of the last day, but God's work to remake the world through the church on earth, which is happening every day, huh? which is happening now. Here I wanted to read from Scott Hahn's Lamb Supper again. He has a nice little reflection in the light of this Behold, I make all things new. This is Scott Hahn. The book Revelation is not as strange as it seems, and the Mass is richer than we'd ever dreamed. Behold, God makes all things new. Revelation is as familiar as the life we live, and even the dullest Mass is suddenly paved with gold and glittering jewels. And he encourages us here to open our eyes. You and I need to open our eyes and rediscover this long-lost secret of the church. The early Christians' key to understanding the mysteries of the Mass, the only true key to the mysteries of the what? Apocalypse. If you were to turn to the Catechism, paragraph 1139, what do you read there? It is in this eternal liturgy that the Spirit and the Church enable us to participate whenever we celebrate the mystery of salvation in the sacraments. So as Scott Hahn continues to reflect here, we go to heaven not only when we die or when we go to Rome or when we make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and I love this point, we go to heaven when we go to Mass. My dear friends, this is not merely a symbol. This is not merely a metaphor. This is not a parable. This, this is not a figure of speech. It is real. 
Scott Hahn, quotes St. Athanasius here, My beloved brethren, it is no temporal feast that we come to, but an eternal heavenly feast. We do not display it in shadows. We approach it in reality. So heaven on earth, that's reality. You know, my friends, we hear the phrase from a lot of different people. You just need to live in reality or get real. What, what is reality? What is real? Huh? Could we not say that in the light of faith and reason, everything that we are talking about is a whole lot more reality than what is intended to mean when we hear those phrases, live in reality or get real? Brothers and sisters, the mass, that's reality. That's real. Why do you think it is the one thing that has withstood the test of time? Because it is the most real thing. And when we contemplate upon the significance and meaning of what we are talking about now, I think we can gather what we intend to mean when we say, heaven on earth, that's reality. Incidentally, Pope Francis talked about this very point in Joy of the Gospel. For you faithful listeners out there, maybe you remember that reflection where Pope Francis really challenged everyone to to rethink how we think about reality. We know a few things. I know everyone says death and taxes. Well, we know one thing, death, right? (laughs) And with death, we are made to reflect upon the last things. And so this is why we ought to live with the end in mind. And we do that best, how, but with and in the mass, of course. Okay, how about Revelation chapter 21, verse 6? And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without price from the fountain of the water of life. Mm. A whole lot more rich imagery, my friends. It is done. You know, the words Jesus utters, it is done, should call to mind what but his words from the cross. It is finished, otherwise known as it is consummated, consummatum est. Just a few minutes ago, I was talking about how God's covenant union with his people is consummated in the Eucharist because this is why he came. Again, he desires to be in the most intimate relationship with man. You know, I often get the question asked, and over the years I have been asked this in various ways, but the essence of the question is, do you have a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior? And I'm often asked this by folks outside the Catholic Church, which I love that question, by the way. For those non-Catholic listeners, keep on asking that question because there's no other question that's more important than that question. And if you are listening to me for the first time and you hear a Catholic saying, there's no more important question than that question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Be rest assured, I'm saying that with intent. Because there is no more important question than, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Ask that question, because it's out from a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ that we are going to become the person that God is calling us to become, the best version of who God is calling us to become. Now, as Catholics, what we do with that is say, we not only have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but we believe in our faith tradition of 2,000 years with sacred scripture that yes, we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, one that is so intimate that he actually enters into a bridal union with our very souls. And my dear friends, I don't know if it gets any more intimate than that, quite frankly. 
Now, I'm speaking now to my non-Catholic listener because I want you to know that that phrase, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, is something that is also very important to Catholics as well, and I think could really be a good starting point for our ecumenical discussions. So yeah, that phrase, it is done, tied with it is finished, is so important given the context of the Eucharist. How about Alpha and Omega? Well, I know many of you know that these letters are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, and it is another way of alluding to Isaiah's description of the Lord as the first and the last. If you were to go to Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, Isaiah chapter 48, 12, you find uh, God described as the first and the last. Now, what's interesting here, my friends, is that it also fittingly describes him here at the consummation of all things as the what? Lord of history, the one through whom all things were made, also bringing them to fulfillment. Hmm. How about this uh, discussion of water? Well, Jesus' promise that the righteous shall drink from the fountain of water evokes Jesus' words in John's gospel, chapter 7, verses 37 to 38. You probably thought about these verses. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, in effect, that those who are thirsty will come to him, and then the living waters will flow not only from himself, but also from them. That we become conduits of life-giving water. How powerful is that? So, those who drink from the fountain of life are those who have received the Holy Spirit and enter into communion with the triune God. What does Jesus tell us? In John chapter 14, verse 23, we will come to him and make our home with him. What else could be said of the water? Well, though the water is a symbol for God's presence, it nonetheless, my friends, is an efficacious sign. That is to say, a symbol that actually accomplishes what it represents. The water of baptism isn't merely a symbol of rebirth. It is through water, and of course we could properly say, and the word, that our rebirth in Christ is actually accomplished. This is why we hear the words from Christ in John chapter 3, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. My dear friends, we call one another, brother or sister in Christ, because we are baptized into the one family of Christ. And this is our home. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. So let us go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, an evening that is so providential. As we reflect into the beauty and the wonder of Christmas season and your presence in the manger We are made to reflect into the importance of relationship, the very intimate relationship that you call us into with you. And Revelation chapter 21 certainly demands our attention to this very intimate relationship with you. And for this, we praise you, and by our words and deeds, we seek and hope to glorify you. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.